1: California Governor Gavin Newsom declared a statewide emergency on Tuesday due to widespread wildfires and the ongoing heat wave. His declaration noted hundreds of fires actively burning across the state as a result of extreme weather conditions. The declaration is aimed at freeing up resources for crews battling the fires. With the heat wave continuing to put pressure on energy supplies, the state system operator declared a stage two electrical emergency Tuesday. Stage three is when outages can occur. Further along in the show, we'll have more on the state power struggles from KPBS's Eric Anderson. San Diego County is officially off the state's coronavirus watch list. Now, the countdown is on. If we stay off for 14 days, K-12 through students would be allowed back in classrooms. For now, all the current restrictions on businesses remain in place until the state provides additional guidance. As for the latest numbers, the county reported seven more people died from the virus Tuesday and there were 202 new positive cases. Mayor Kevin Faulkner signed an executive order yesterday aimed at making it easier for churches and gyms to operate outside.
2: Fitness camps, gym classes, religious services, they can all be held in a park, giving patrons plenty of room and air to physically distance.
1: The order is set to take effect next Monday. It comes as a number of indoor churches and gyms across the county have remained open for weeks now, in direct violation of the mandate to move operations outside. Crystal Lombardi is the owner of Hardcore Fitness in Mira Mesa. She says she's glad for the space and shade that parks could provide her business.
3: It's obviously very difficult to members to go outside in a parking lot in the asphalt in the hot beating sun.
1: Gyms and houses of worship still need to apply for permits for the use of public parks, but fees will be waived for the first 60 days. The Democratic National Convention continued last night with former Presidents Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter, and it's on again tonight. Be sure to tune in to KPBS radio starting at 6 p.m. or catch it this evening on KPBS television, If you miss it, you can always go online at kpbs.org to get the latest recap. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Wednesday, August 19th. You're listening to San Diego News Matters from KPBS News. Stay with me for more of the local news you need to start your day. California's power grid managers are under fire after initiating the first rolling blackouts since 2001. Now, a former utility regulator says it may be time to change the system. KPBS's Eric Anderson reports.
2: The governor is investigating and critics are calling out the California independent system operator for initiating rolling blackouts. Demand for power during the current heat wave is outstripping supply, but a former state utility regulator sees a different picture. Loretta Lynch argues there are plenty of reserves. The utilities have already bought up to 100 percent of the expected peak, plus 15
3: percent more. The ISO just won't use this for no good reason, and that's what they should be explaining to all of California.
2: The former California Public Utilities Commission president says she wants more transparency UC Berkeley economist Severin Borenstein sits on the Cal-ISO board. He says making contract information public is not a good idea.
0: There is a reason to keep contracts confidential in business dealings. They're trying to get the best
4: deals they can, and making them public could undermine that.
2: Borenstein says grid operators are handling the current situation correctly, although he says the public did deserve more notice before rolling blackouts hit. He says power forecasts predicted energy supplies would be tight if a heat wave hit this summer.
1: That was KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. All of the struggles with the state's energy supply has had some San Diegans wondering how they'll know if they'll be impacted by rolling blackouts. San Diego Gas and Electric spokeswoman Helen Gao said there's a list.
5: Customers are grouped into blocks and we have a list of blocks that we would go through, uh, rotate through if we're asked to do rotating outages.
1: So your potential for an outage depends on how high up on the list your residence block is. How many outages we'll have depends on, well, you, how well we all conserve energy between 3 and 10 p.m. The good news is that the conservation efforts prevented outages earlier this week, but Gao says it's not over.
5: We're not out of the woods. The situation is still really critical. We uh, need everybody to continue to do their part
1: to conserve energy. The blackout list can be found on the SDGE website at sdge.com. A court-ordered freeze on evictions expires September 1st, and California state lawmakers are scrambling to avoid a wave of new evictions. CAP Radio's Nicole Nixon has this story. San Francisco Assemblymember David Chu sounded a dire warning about what could happen if the legislature doesn't pass new protections for renters and homeowners affected by the pandemic.
0: If we don't change state law in the next two weeks, we will see a massive wave of evictions. This will be catastrophic for tenants, property owners, homelessness, and COVID-19 spread.
1: His bill would give renters until April 2022 to backfill missed payments, but it wouldn't cancel rent. Homeowners and landlords would also get a forbearance period. Chu's proposal passed a Senate committee after a marathon six-hour hearing. There are still questions about potential court challenges and how much a year-long protection period will actually help. But Chu says he's just trying to stave off an immediate homelessness crisis. In Sacramento, I'm Nicole Nixon. More than half of the men locked up at a privately run detention center in Bakersfield have been diagnosed with COVID-19. That's after a federal judge ordered U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement to test all detainees at the facility. KQED's Farida Javala-Romero reports. Fifty-six detainees held at the Mesa Verde ICE Processing Center have tested positive for COVID-19. Early last week, ICE reported just 10 positive cases. U.S. District Judge Vince Chabria says the agency could have avoided the rapidly growing outbreak at the facility. ICE says most of those infected were segregated in a dorm, and at least one man was hospitalized. Last week, Chabria also directed ICE and the GEO Group, which owns and operates Mesa Verde, to regularly test all staffers. Detainees sued in April to force ICE to take steps to prevent an outbreak. Since then, about 200 people have been released on bail or parole. 106 remain detained at Mesa Verde. For the California Report, i Farida Javala-Romero. San Diego leaders rallied at the Midway Post Office in support of the U.S. Postal Service in Day of Action Tuesday. It follows weeks of mounting concern over mail delays and cost-cutting measures. San Diego Congresswoman Suzanne Davis said the role of the post office affects all Americans. Suddenly, blue
0: mailboxes have disappeared. Sorting machines have been turned off. Postal workers have been told to go home and let mail pile up on tables post office have closed during lunch and these actions hurt everyone.
1: Eddie Cooper Jr. is the president of San Diego's American Postal Workers Union. He says USPS desperately needs the recently proposed billions of relief funding.
5: That's going
6: to affect the running of the United States Postal Service. Without that stimulus money, Postal Service literally can be out of money here within the next four or five months.
1: In response to widespread criticism, late Tuesday, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy said he will suspend the operational changes he had instituted for the post office until after the November election. Classrooms might be virtual now, but disruptive student behaviors are still very real, and so are their consequences. KPBS education reporter Joe Hong spoke to administrators about how distance learning impacts school discipline. He brings us this story.
4: Earlier this month, on the first day of the new school year in the Sweetwater Union High School District, a student brandished a firearm during a virtual class session. The police were called and officers arrived at the student's residence to find that the weapon was a BB gun and no one was harmed. Later in the week, the district, which was the first in the county to start the fall semester, received reports of students sharing pornographic images during online classes. These disruptive behaviors add yet another layer to the challenges facing teachers and administrators as they restart school in the COVID era. Manny Rubio is the spokesman for the Sweetwater Union High School District. He said the expectations for student behavior are the same as they were before the pandemic.
0: If you were in a classroom, it's, you know, respecting your classmates, your fellow classmates, respecting the, the teacher that's in, that's in front of you giving the lesson, um, asking questions that are thoughtful and, and very, you know, that are appropriate for the class. Um, it's making sure that you're prepared. It's making sure that Um, You know, when you're offline, you're also conducting yourself in a way that's respectful and proper.
4: But educators across the county know that this is a new reality for students. And while rules for behavior stayed the same, their learning environments are completely different. Jamie Dayhoff is the director of attendance and discipline at Poway Unified. He said the new setting can lead to changes in student
0: behavior. This is a new environment for students. Um, The rules are not established. this is you know we, we make some assumptions that kids know that you know when you're in your bedroom doing this stuff that you're held to the same uh levels of conduct that you would be if you're sitting in a classroom. And I don't think we can make those assumptions.
4: The state education code requires suspensions and even expulsions for certain offenses. And Dayhoff and other school officials made it clear that students will still be punished for disrupting online classes. But they also acknowledge they'll have to take extra steps to make sure the punishments don't further exacerbate the problems schools have connecting with their students. Rubio said Sweetwater is having counselors reach out to students and parents to better understand negative behaviors.
0: And so what we want to
4: understand is is
0: this, you know, just a case of, you know, uh, a kid trying to make a disruption just for the sake of it, just for the, you know, for the sake of doing it or is there something behind that? And so we really want to know, get to the the root cause of what's going on.
4: School officials are also quick to say that they are still working to emphasize restorative justice and other alternatives to punitive discipline, in part to eliminate the disproportionate impact on students of color, students with disabilities and low income students. But advocates worry that when physical campuses reopen, districts will revert to overly punitive practices in the potentially dangerous learning environment created by the pandemic. Daniel Lawson is the director of the Center for Civil Rights Remedies at UCLA. He's concerned, for example, that a shoving match between students or a confrontation with a teacher where a student violates social distancing could lead to harsher penalties due to the public health risks involved with physical contact.
0: And I worry that when we reopen schools, that teachers, again, may, may with increasingly increasing frequency view situations that normally they might handle as dangerous situations. And so one response might be that Schools, uh, teachers and administrators will will call police more often than before, uh, because now every small incident could have uh, a danger component to it that didn't exist before.
4: Dayhoff said planning and communication will be key to avoiding such
0: scenarios. It's like you're in school and um, we want you to be relaxed and, and be able to learn. But you know you can't be disrupting. You can't. There are certain things you just cannot do, and, and you're held. and I, And I think the more specific we can get with students on scenarios and, and things that occur, you know, that that's the better. Joe Hong, KPBS News.
1: Stay with us.
6: Do you guys do drills and stuff yeah. like that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do we do, do those. Here? We
1: do evacuation drills. Really? Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, I have. Um, How often? Uh, probably every quarter. Part two of the Older and Overlooked series comes to us from our partners at KQED. The series is an investigation into the challenges faced by long term care homes during both a pandemic and wildfire season. That's up next after this. A number of wildfires are currently burning in California, and this week we're exploring how assisted living facilities prepare for emergencies in a special series from our colleagues at KQED called Older and Overlooked. The investigation found that across the state, 37% of these facilities are located in areas at heightened risk for wildfire. It's a little higher in San Diego County at 41%, but in Nevada County, 100% of facilities are at risk. KQED's health correspondent April Demboski traveled to Grass Valley in Nevada County before COVID-19 to see how assisted living facilities for the elderly are preparing for wildfire season. April tells us a new law aimed at helping these facilities prepare for disaster is falling short. Continue on California 49 South for nine miles.
6: Randy Dinning spends most of his work week in his Black Honda fit. He's a long-term care ombudsman for the State Department of Aging, which means he drops in at residential facilities for the elderly to check on the quality of the food or the care. But on this shift, for the first time, he's asking about disaster preparedness. All righty. Off we go. First stop of the day is Sierra View Manor. This is assisted living as opposed to skilled nursing, which is overseen by the State Department of Public Health. Uh, assisted living is non-medical. It's overseen All by the State Department non-medical. of Social Services. So overall, places. the rules here are weaker. Um, but Randy isn't the enforcer. As an ombudsman, days. he's more the tattletale to the enforcers. Straight away, he has to talk to the boss. If uh, the boss lady is around. Hi. Administrator <laughs> Vanessa lely comes out, and as Randy tries to ease into questions about disaster planning, she interrupts to say, we are the best.
3: Well, I'm going to brag right from the beginning. And
6: she begins listing the virtues of her generator.
3: Cover the entire building in
6: so their evacuation plan. Here
3: within seven minutes the and the go bags they
6: prep for each resident. Do you guys do drills and
2: stuff yeah. like that? Do yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, do we do, do those, here? we do
3: evacuation drills. Really? Oh, oh
2: yeah. Oh,
3: I have um, How often? Uh, probably every quarter. Every quarter. Yeah. Okay. But the
6: conversation gets awkward when Vanessa reveals they only have one employee on staff overnight, person. caring for 46 residents. If wildfire strikes, she says the folks at the skilled nursing facility next door will take them in. You know, they're but they're they not going to
0: have 46 beds over there. No. She
6: says maybe they'd take them to the local high school. But we're never going to
3: have one of those kinds of emergencies. I insist. <laughs>
6: <laughs> but that's exactly what happened nearly three years ago in Santa Rosa, when wildfires swept through in the middle of the night. Two assisted living facilities had only a handful of staff, and they left about 100 elderly residents behind for relatives and police to rescue. One facility burned down, as did eight others across the state that year.
3: That was a, a, a real eye-opener for us, that staff weren't trained.
6: Pan Dickfoss is the enforcer. She oversees licensing for assisted living facilities for the Department of Social Services. She says the new law that took effect last year was a direct response to what happened in Santa Rosa.
3: These fires identified the need for the entire area to be evacuated.
6: Instead of being prepared to escape a kitchen fire, as the older law outlined, facilities now need to have options of where they'll go,
3: two shelter locations for
6: how they're going to get there,
3: plan for transportation, and
6: who will be responsible for what.
3: This bill really strengthened the requirements in an emergency plan.
6: But state data indicates the department is reluctant to enforce them. In 2018, state inspectors cited just 62 facilities for having an insufficient disaster plan. Last year, when the law took effect, they cited 239. But that's still just 3% out of nearly 7,600 facilities across the state. Dick Voss says inspectors see themselves more as consultants rather than disciplinarians.
3: It's really a collaborative effort across the state, between the providers, between the advocates, and the department.
6: But that's not how some advocates for the elderly see the department.
3: It's a provider protection agency, not a consumer protection agency.
6: Chris Murphy runs an advocacy group dedicated to assisted living reform. She and her colleagues have been asking regulators for better evacuation plans and training for a decade.
3: They will rarely come down on the side of the consumer. She says the new
6: law was written by the assisted living industry and doesn't do nearly enough to protect residents. For example, it requires portable evacuation chairs at the top of every stairwell, but facilities are still required to have just one employee on duty overnight for every 99 residents.
3: I don't care how many little evacuation chairs you have. If you have one person trying to do that, nobody's getting out.
6: Murphy says the law also fails to acknowledge how complex residents' health status has gotten. Two decades ago, assisted living was meant for people who needed a little bit of help. Now, more and more are bedridden or have dementia. At the Cascades of Grass Valley Assisted Living Facility, 90% of the residents have some form of dementia.
5: Hi, Miss Betty. Hi. Hi, Cleta.
6: Administrator Pepsi Pittman rests her hand on the shoulder of a resident sitting by herself at the kitchen table.
5: All right, are you ready for
3: lunch? For lunch, I thought I was here for breakfast.
6: (laughs) Research shows that people with dementia are more likely to die after a disaster. But the new law is silent on how to prepare this population. Fire drills aren't really an option. Loud sounds and changes in routine put people with dementia at risk for wandering off. We don't want to overstimulate them. We don't want to make them anxious. For advice on this, Pepsi confers with other facilities in town, like Atria-assisted living down the road. When a brush fire broke out next to Atria's building last fall and they had to evacuate 110 people, staff told the dementia residents they were going on a field trip.
0: You act like it's just another day and we're going for a bus ride.
6: Regional Vice President Andrew Levine says they took everyone to the Crown Plaza Hotel in Sacramento. There, teams got to work making the room safe for people with dementia.
0: We go in, we take out all the coffee machines, we take out the iron, the soaps.
6: Why Why the soaps?
0: Uh, Because we don't want them to eat it. You know, we take out everything that potentially could be harmful.
6: Beyond safety, staff went about recreating life at Atria at the hotel. Games, karaoke, dancing. It was a little mini vacation. It was fun.
2: I think I won three (laughs) bingo games.
6: (laughs) Betty Johnson and Bud Paul are both 94. (laughs) <laughs> so we had a nice evening. And, uh, Three days and later, I when they came back to Grass Valley, staff were in the driveway shaking and the pom-poms and pouring champagne.
3: They were greeting us all lined up, welcome home, and you really felt it.
6: But all these efforts were possible because Atria has a corporate office that can mobilize teams of people. Most facilities are smaller and can't afford that. And together, the industry lobbies to keep these kinds of best practices as recommendations, rather than law.
1: That was April Demboski with our reporting partner, KQED. Tomorrow, Bodhi Tree Concerts presents Songs of Suffrage, a concert to mark the centennial of the passing of the 19th Amendment, granting women the right to vote, although not guaranteeing any women the ability to vote. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando has this preview.
6: Bodie Tree Concerts recounts the fight for the 19th Amendment through history songs and speeches performed by local artists like Mary Munger Taylor.
3: Suffragettes were distinguished from suffragists by their willingness to take militant action.
5: We're clearly soldiers in petticoats, dauntless crusaders for women's votes though we adore men individually we agree that as a group they're rather stupid cast off the shackles of yesterday shoulder to shoulder into the fray our daughters daughters will adore us and they'll sing in grateful chorus Sister Suffragettes! Songs
6: of Suffrage is a free event on Facebook and YouTube, but donations are encouraged. Event organizers hope the concert highlights how voting rights are still under attack, and the fight for equity continues.
5: On August 20th, they signed the 19th Amendment into law. But the 19th Amendment did not enfranchise all women. Black women, Native American women, and other women of color remained disenfranchised for decades. The right to vote did not become a reality for all women in America until the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But today, voting rights continue to be challenged.
6: For more information, go to BodhiTreeConcerts.org. Beth Accomando, KPBS News.
5: I am standing on the shoulders of the ones who came before me. I am stronger for their courage. I am wiser for their.
1: San Diego News Matters is a daily morning news podcast powered by all of the reporters, editors, and producers in the KPBS newsroom. Tune in to KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS radio or catch KPBS Evening Edition at 5.30 p.m. on KPBS television to keep up with the news throughout your day. You can also find us on Twitter at KPBS News, or to find our podcast producer, Kinsey Moreland, she's at Kinsey. And as always, you can find more KPBS podcasts like Only Here or Cinema Junkie on our website at kpbs.org slash podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.
5: And the troubles and the challenge when we know that by our efforts things will be better in the end they lift me high My shoulders will.